the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Numbers. God had been preparing the children of Israel to enter the land promised to their forefathers. They had wandered in the desert for 38 years. Now that a whole rebellious generation of Israelites had died, God was drawing them closer to himself in order that they would be blessed beyond what they could imagine. God had told Moses that Joshua would be taking his place to lead the nation. God had laid out more sacrifices for the children of Israel, that they would worship him on his terms. The Israelites were not to make their own rules and laws about how to worship God. God had implemented certain sacrifices to be offered on special feast days. We look now at the sacrifices offered for the Feast of Tabernacles in Numbers chapter 29, verse 12. We stopped in the middle of covering of all the special holy days and feasts because we wanted to spend some time on this Feast of Tabernacles, but we're going to get into chapter 30 as well. What's interesting, though, is if we go through this chapter 28 and 29, which covers the feasts, in our review of worship, we saw no mention of music or singing. None at all. Now, rest assured, there was plenty of that during these feasts and festivals. But I think the Lord wanted to associate worship, not necessarily with music, but with what it represented. He wanted to associate it with sacrifice, with surrender, and with confession. You know, he didn't want his people confusing the use of music as worship by itself. When we come together to sing, you know, it should be a culmination of a week of worshiping God through everyday life. And so as we continue that theme this week, look at chapter 30 as well, may it help us to put feet to our worship as we're practicing it out by our godly behavior each and every day. So chapter 29, and we're going to pick it up in verse 12. Remember every day they had a special offering, right? They had to offer burn offering, grain offering every morning and every evening, and then a sin offering every day. And then the first of the month, they had to offer a much larger offering. And then every Sabbath, they had to offer, you know, a little bit more. So if you had a Sabbath that fell on the first of the month, it was a busy day. And then you had all the holy days. You had the Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And now we're getting to the Feast of Tabernacles. Those were the seven high holy feasts of Israel. Now today they celebrate two more, the Feast of Purim, which commemorates what happened with Esther, and then the Feast of Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights, which Jesus celebrated. That actually was something that was founded during the period between the Old and the New Testament. So we're only dealing with the ones commanded here in the Law of Moses. Doesn't mean the other ones are bad, or 
perfectly fine. But these are the ones we're dealing with here. So those seven feasts. And the last one we didn't get to last week is the Feast of Tabernacles. So it says, on the 15th day of the seven months, so that's five days after Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, the Lord tells Moses, you shall have a holy convocation, you shall do no servile work, and you shall keep a feast unto the Lord for seven days. This idea here, on the 15th day of the seventh month, they will have a holy convocation, which means they're going to have a special gathering where everybody in Israel is going to get together to worship the Lord. And it says, you shall do no servile work. Now, obviously, to get to where you need to go, there'd be work that had to be done. But servile work is the idea not to do any labor. No going into work for a few hours that day or no going out to the fields for a few hours that day. You're not working that day. It's like the Sabbath in that sense. But then you're going to gather together and there'll be all sorts of festivities that go on during this time. For it says, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord. It says for seven days. A little bit of background on it. This is called the Feast of Sukkoth because the word Sukkoth refers to booths or tents. The Feast of Tabernacles was to commemorate God's provision while they were in the desert living in tents. This was something that they were to celebrate while they were in the desert and then when they get to the promised land to remember how God provided for them while they were in the desert. And then when they would get to the promised land, it was also to celebrate that they were no longer living in tents because God had granted them victory in the promised land. He'd been faithful to his promises. It was a special day, a time of celebration, time of great thanksgiving. Now, they would keep this for seven days. So what they would do is they would, outside the city, they would all construct these booths and they would sleep out under the stars and whatnot. And the idea was, is they're doing this in remembrance for God's faithfulness to bring them through the desert and into the land and give them victory over their enemies. You might be saying, okay, that's great. And then if you read through, you notice the offerings are very similar to all the other holy days. Why is this section go all the way to the end of the chapter when the other ones were four or five verses? You you start with 13 bulls on the first day. Let me read it. And you shall offer a burnt offering, a sacrifice made by fire, of a sweet savor. In other words, it's a pleasant aroma to the Lord. And it starts off with 13 young bulls, two rams, and 14 lambs of the first year. And they shall be without blemish. That was a requirement for every offering. And then with that, you have a grain offering for each of those animals. And their grain offering, King James says meat offering, but it means a grain offering. It shall be of flour mingled with oil, three-tenth deals unto every bullock of the 13 bullocks. So all 13 bullocks required three-tenth deals of flour mingled with oil. And then two-tenth deals to each ram of the two rams. And then a several, which just means one-tenth of a deal to each lamb of the 14 lambs. And then you would also bring, and this is just like the other festivals, you would bring one kid of the goats for a sin offering. And this is beside the daily offering of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the drink offering that we learned about at the beginning of chapter 28. So this is a big, huge butchering job that has to be done, lots of barbecuing and lots of celebrating. But the reason this section is so long, that's the normal section, is look at what happens on the second day. And on the second day, you shall offer not 13, but how many? 12. 12 bullocks, and then everything else stays the same. And if we go down to the next day, the third day, verse 20, how many do you offer? 11. So as you're seeing, as each day goes by, the number of bulls that you're sacrificing goes down by one until all the way down on the seventh day, we go down to verse 32. And on the seventh day, it goes back to the normal offering that the other holidays had. Seven bulls, two rams, 14 lambs, and everything else is the same. 
the reason they lowered the amount, that God had them lower the amount, according to the rabbis, each day, was to remind them of how God had faithfully provided for them as they made their way to the land. The idea was is that there was this anticipation as they got closer and closer and closer and closer, and they were to be remembering each stage of that anticipation as they got closer and closer by subtracting a bullock, until eventually it was just like every other holiday, and to signify that they were no longer out of the land, they were finally in the land. That, being in the land, they would commemorate on the eighth day. So we're going to skip all the way down to verse 35, and now we're going to talk about that, this final day, because this is a big deal. On the eighth day, you shall have a solemn assembly, so they have another big gathering together, together, big celebration. You shall do no servile work therein, so everybody gets a day off. But you shall offer a burnt offering, a sacrifice made by fire, of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Just one bull, one ram, and then half seven lambs of the first year without blemish. The grain offering, the drink offering for the bull, for the ram and for the lamb shall be according to their number after the manner. So in other words, it's the same. The amount of grain that they bring shall be the same for each one, even though it's less. The amount of animals being offered is less, but it's the same amount for each animal. And one goat for a sin offering, and this is beside the daily offering the priest had to do every day, the burnt offering, grain offering, and his drink offering. These things you shall do unto the Lord Oh, I'm sorry, that, we'll get to that in a second. So the last day, it's only one bull. It's mentions here up in verse 35, on the eighth day, you shall have not a holy convocation, but it calls it what kind of an assembly? A solemn assembly. Now that's interesting because the word solemn isn't in the original language. In fact, there was nothing solemn about this eighth day. I'll explain why it was translated solemn in a moment though. To commemorate that they're in the land, it would be like all the other holidays this month where they just had the regular holiday where they would just offer one bull, okay? And the reason was is this was considered the great day of the feast because now all's well in the land. Everything is as God promised it would be. Why did I wait till today to talk about this? You're thinking, you just went over this all last week. Why couldn't you just take another three minutes and do that? Well, in Jesus' day, Israel was in the land, but the last day of the feast was not as celebratory. See, 600 years earlier, Babylon took them from their land. And when they returned to their land, they no longer governed themselves. So this day was bittersweet for many in Israel. We're in the land, but we're not free. Something is still missing. The Jews in Jesus' day added a ritual to the Feast of Tabernacles. On the first morning of that first day, so we have eight days where special things happen. On the first of those days, there would be this huge procession of priests that would go down to the Pool of Siloam. The temple was up on the top of the mount area there, and they would go down the winding street, down to the very bottom where the gate entrance to the city was, one of the entrances, and the Pool of Siloam would be down there. And no one would bathe in the Pool of Siloam. It was water that was used for ceremonial purposes. And so they would take this big, huge jug, this big, huge golden Container, and they would bring up the water and bring it there, and it would be enough water to last throughout the seven days of the feast for, for washing them ceremonially as they're doing the offerings and whatnot. And the water was brought up with a huge procession, a, a lot of pomp and circumstance and ceremony. Now, on the last day, or the great day, the eighth day of the feast, the priests would circle the altar of sacrifice seven times. And then, while everyone's watching, as they're all gathered there on that eighth day, the solemn assembly, they would pour out the water again with great pomp and great ceremony. This was called by them the Hoshana Rabbah or the great Hosanna, which is translated save now. Now you've heard that word in some of our songs and the reason for that is because there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that is referring to the Messiah and the people will cry Hosanna 
in the highest, which means save now from heaven. You come and you rescue us, God. You do a miracle. And so they would do this at the end of the ceremony and shout this great Hosanna because they're praying, God, fix this thing that's missing. Save now. But there was a problem. The Messiah had not come yet. They weren't saved from their enemies. And so when that water would be poured out and that bowl left empty, the last day became a very solemn day, which is why the King James translators put the word solemn there because that's how it was more like in Jesus's day. It was solemn for them because it were empty. You know, they might be in the land, but something was still missing. And that empty pot left them feeling empty. Now, with that in mind, let's turn to John chapter seven to see something really cool. We learned from the beginning of John seven, verse two, that the Feast of Tabernacles was close. And so Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles. Look at verse 37 and see if anything holds a little bit more significance to you. It says in verse 37, and in the last day, that great day of the feast, so this is day eight, when they would pour out that container and be left with that empty feeling. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood, now he's in, remember, he's in the gathering with everybody there. They're all gathered for this momentous occasion. He stood and he cried out saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. John gives commentary there about what Jesus was referring to. See, Israel was looking for rescue from the Romans or whoever was in charge throughout that part of their history. And they would see that empty jug poured out and the Messiah had not come and they would all shout the Hosanna and yet he wasn't there. And they would be left with that empty feeling. And Jesus is saying, don't look at that empty pot. He's saying, if you're still thirsty, you're looking for more, something's missing. You need to understand the real enemy isn't Rome or Babylon or anybody else. The real enemy is sin. And see, that's where that emptiness came from. So Jesus promised to give the Holy Spirit to all who trusted in him that they might overcome sin and experience the fullness of joy that comes from being truly free. Isn't that cool? That whole event, I mean, it's not even a biblical ritual in the sense that God commanded it, and yet they were doing this. You know, one year, my hope is to get some folks that do the the Seder dinner and explain the significance of all the things that go on in the Seder dinner to us where we have have it together and they explain it. Because within their feast, they do things in the Bible, but then they've got all sorts of other things they do. But every bit of it points to Jesus. Every bit of it. They don't even know it. And it's so interesting when you see that, that God, with that guiding hand, allowed them to add that ritual because on that last day of the feast, when he sees the thing poured out and that feeling of emptiness come over, he stands up and he cries out, you don't have to be empty. You can be free. Something doesn't have to be missing. Part of the way that we worship God is by daily denying ourselves and letting him fill us with his spirit. See, then we love others. Then we have joy and peace. Then we exercise self-control. And remember that word that we're covering all throughout chapter 29, which is, it was a sweet savor to the Lord, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Don't you think when you're loving others and you're filled with joy and peace and you're exercising self-control, don't you think your life is a sweet aroma to the Lord? I mean, that's what we want, right? You know, that's what our worship looks like. It's great. And you know, I love the fact that we can sing together and we should do that. But I, I want my life to be, in my behavior to be a sweet aroma to the Lord. Well, back in Numbers, there's two more verses at the end there. Verse 39 and verse 40. These things you shall do unto the Lord 
in your set feasts, but this, he says, is beside your vows, your freewill offerings for your burnt offerings and your grain offerings and for your drink offerings and for your peace offerings. And Moses told the children of Israel, according to all the Lord commanded Moses. So, I mean, he now relays this to them. All of these holiday things, remember we said it's from the priest's perspective what they needed to do, but all of this was to be in addition to your personal offerings. So if you were going to make a vow to the Lord or swear an oath to the Lord or bring a peace offering or or burn offering or a grain offering, and we've discussed what those represent in Leviticus, so I'm not going to go over those again, but this was in addition to anything you would just personally do that was between you and the Lord. And I think this is important because it shows us that worship is to be both personal and corporate. Coming to church to worship isn't enough, but neither is worshiping in your home every day. We need both. We need to be together worshiping the Lord because there's important things that that occur in our hearts and also that he is worthy of when we do it together. But also we need to be doing it in our personal lives each and every day. And I would ask you tonight, are you doing that? Both of those things. You know, are you worshiping God throughout the week? both in song and in your conduct? And then, you know, are you coming to church regularly to worship in the congregation corporately together with other believers? We need both. Well, chapter 30. And Moses, verse 1, spoke unto the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. So this is now a new section. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, there might be a little bit of a disconnect here because, I mean, I know for you, I'm thinking, when are we going to get into the land? Let's start getting to the conquer and the promised land. And yet, the Lord has reasons for why they're not moving just yet. Being successful in the promised land means settling down, right? I mean, when they conquer their enemies, they're going to build houses and settle down and live there permanently. They're not going to be on the move anymore. Well, having a permanent dwelling place means business deals and then religious commitments being made to the Lord. I love what one commentator said. He he said, the very fact that plans are being made for the sacrifices, what we looked in the last two chapters, and then vows, this chapter, that will be performed in the land, they are sure indicators that God is going to complete his work for his people. He's going to bring them into the promised land. He's going to make them successful. All one needs to do is to prepare for the coming battle. I like that. What a great reminder when all you and I can see facing us in a day is walled cities and giants, right? I mean, maybe I'm the only one who has walled cities and giants and things I don't know how I'm going to handle, but what a great reminder when that's all we can see in front of us. Our job is to prepare for the battle, right? Whose job is it to win it? It's the Lord's. My job is to just be prepared. And the cool part is God won't fail on his side. So if I get prepared, the Lord's going to have the victory, amen? Now here in verses one and two, we get a general law concerning vows. The Lord says, if a man, and here this is the general word for mankind, so both men and women are in mind when he says man. So if a man vow a vow unto the Lord, so if a man makes a promise to God, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond. The word here, swear an oath, means a contractual promise between two parties. A bond means a pledge or a binding obligation. So Two things remind here. If you make a promise to God or you enter into a contract with another human being, I guess if you make a promise to your cat, you should keep that too, but God's not addressing that here. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. 
He should do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, this is the general rule for promises made to God or made to other people. Jesus addresses vows made to God himself in Matthew chapter 5. So why don't you turn there? Jesus addresses promises made to God, beginning in verse 33. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking about many things. And he says, again, you have heard that it has been said by them of old time, you shall not, King James says, forswear yourself, means you, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform unto the Lord your oaths. That's pretty much what we talked about here, right? But look what Jesus says. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shall you swear by your own head, because you cannot make one hair black, white, or black. Jesus didn't know about hair coloring. You know what he's saying there. You can't You can't change it intrinsically. But let your communication, let your conduct, your word be yes means yes. No, no, no means no. For whatsoever is more than these comes of evil or literally from an evil person. For example, when we were kids, if we really didn't want to get in trouble about something, we'd say, no, no, I promise, I promise, I promise I won't do that. Wanted to get somebody, oh, I promise, I promise. You kind of knew it was coming after that, you know. It's kind of like Lucy with the football, you know, and no, I won't do it this time, Chuck, you know. And of course, what does she do? She pulls it away at the last second. At some point, you just stop feeling bad for Charlie Brown and think you need to wise up, son. So the question is, is Jesus contradicting Moses here? I mean, he says, don't swear to God, just let your yes be yes, let your no be no. No, Jesus is not contradicting Moses. We don't live under the old covenant of sacrifices, of making those vows to God that you're going to do this and offer this. Jesus' sacrifice has made us forever forgiven. He has caused his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And so by him, we can keep the commitments we make to God, and it shouldn't require a binding oath to hold us to it. I shouldn't have to come to God and say, well, God, I know how I can be sometimes, so I've brought little Lammy here to make sure. I said I'd give you seven days of absolute surrender, so here's Lammy to make sure, because this one's costing me. We shouldn't have to do that now. Christ has paid the price in full. His spirit lives inside of us. If I come to the Lord and the Lord says, I want you to give me this time, and I say, Lord, I give it to you. My word should be it, right? I shouldn't need to make some proclamation in front of everybody so to hold me to it so I'll keep my word. That's what Jesus is referring to here in regards to vows. He's saying just let your yes be yes and your no be no. James applies Jesus's teaching to oaths made to men. Look at James chapter 5 verse 12. James knowing what Jesus taught he applies this same principle to oaths that we might make to with another person with by contracts we might enter into with another person. He says, but above all things, my brethren, do not swear, and you'll notice the language is similar here, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into condemnation, judgment. The idea is if you don't keep your word, there is a a price to pay for that. So don't make a promise. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. He tells us to be a person of such integrity that no one would require a binding agreement from us. That's the idea that God's trying to communicate in Numbers 30. God gave these laws to govern an imperfect society to show that if you make a promise, you must keep it. Now, we still live in an imperfect society, right? So unfortunately, not every person we do business with has integrity. Nor does every person who says they're a believer act like one. So while my life shouldn't make someone else think they should need a contract to hold me to my word, 
neither James or Jesus say we shouldn't do that with others. I'm not going to just, you know, somebody comes up and says, hey, you know, I'll do this, you know, for such and such amount of money, and this is exactly what I'll do. And I say, oh, man, you know, I don't need a binding contract for that. I think that's unwise. And in fact, I think Proverbs talks about, though, in many places, that that's an unwise thing to do. It's a bit foolish to not get in a binding agreement on important financial or business matters. And when we think about it, some commitments we make in this life are so serious that they require vows before God and men. You know, when God established marriage in the garden, Adam made a verbal commitment to Eve and she agreed and accepted that commitment. And on that basis, the commentator of the book of Genesis says, God made them one flesh, okay? Jesus, in his teaching on marriage, it reiterates the importance of those vows, So clearly, Jesus wasn't saying you can't ever enter into a binding contract because that will be sinful. That's not what he's saying. What he's communicating is the same thing that Numbers 30 is trying to teach the people. You need to keep your promises if you make them. You need to keep your promises. God desires for us to worship him for who he is and all that he has done for us. He wants us to spend time with him and in doing so, our nature will become more like His. We will be more like God as we draw near to Him on His terms. God has always kept His promises. He has never gone back on His word. One of the things that will be a sign that we are being made more like Him is when we keep our word given to others. We ought to let our yes be yes and our no, no. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.